If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Will you bow your heads? We hear it pretty regularly, Holy One, so we knew to expect it. The use of scripture in political rhetoric is not particularly unusual in these United States of America. It started out harmless enough. Let's fix our eyes on the race marked out for us, a phrase we find in the book of Hebrews. But then he changed the ending. Let's fix our eyes on old glory. Old glory instead of Jesus. We imagine your eyebrows, like ours, register your shock too. The lifelong Christian and vice president of the United States replaced Jesus with the flag, as if they are interchangeable, as if the rest of the text doesn't explain why our eyes should be fixed on Jesus, because he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. The cross. The cross. The Roman Empire's instrument of death, a public service announcement, a billboard of sorts that sent a clear message to those considering civil disobedience. If you disobey, this is where we'll put you. People die on crosses. People like Jesus, for it was a form of execution used for those who systematically defied Roman authority, whether chronically rebellious enslaved people or leaders of resistance movements and their followers. The cross was a symbol of the empire's power to strip a person of dignity and leave their body to be picked apart by wild animals. This is why we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, for he knew that turning tables, setting captives free, and feeding the hungry was a direct route to the cross, and yet, and yet he still didn't hightail it back to Nazareth. He kept breaking chains. He kept welcoming the stranger. He kept trusting that love wins. 
And this is why we are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. May we be found as faithful politicos at risk of the same fate as Jesus for our dogged commitment to justice and peace, not loyal partisans wrapping ourselves in blasphemous nationalism. Be the wind beneath our wings, Holy One, so that when they go low, we go high, as the prophet Michelle Obama encouraged us. Or to use the words of the Apostle Paul, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is our only chance. We pray in the name of our teacher, Jesus, who stayed the course. Amen. The scripture lesson this morning comes from Dolly Parton's song, Nine to Five. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by, it's all taken and no given. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Nine to five, yeah, they got you where they want you, but there's a better life and you dream about it, don't you? It's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it, and you spend your life putting money in his wallet. Our scripture lesson also comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21a. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum. Here ends the readings from several traditions. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. It was Elizabeth Warren's walkout song when she announced she was running for President of the United States. Before that, Hillary Clinton used it in her 2008 campaign. And before that, Nine to Five was the anthem for women who felt overworked, underpaid, and disrespected. Forty years ago, Dolly Parton clicked her fingernails and came up with something that sounded a lot like a typewriter, and one of her most famous songs came to life. Nine to Five was written as the theme song for a movie that tells the story of three female office workers, Violet, played by Lily Tomlin, Dory, Dora Lee, played by Dolly Parton, and Judy, played by Jane Fonda, all of whom were demeaned and harassed by their boss, and the story is how they get revenge. They inadvertently kidnap him, and at one point they string him up to the ceiling. It is hilarious and over the top, and as Jane Fonda would say, enough of a farce 
that even if people didn't want to deal with the issues being raised, they would still like the movie. But before it was number two at the box office in 1980, beaten only by The Empire Strikes Back and the number one song on three different billboard charts, it was the real life stories of working women in Boston. In the 1970s, longtime labor leader and organizer Karen Nussbaum was in Boston organizing against the Vietnam War, but she also needed to pay rent. She ended up getting a job that was the most typical for women at the time, which was as a clerical worker. As she would describe to a reporter, the 1970s is the, this moment where you have millions of women working for wages for the very first time. Women, until the 1970s, couldn't even get credit in their own name. They had to get a man to do it for them. The single most common job was as secretary or office clerical, and the women who held those positions were often treated as the wife. Get the coffee, be a sex symbol, hem the pants, smile pretty, no matter what was said or done to you, just be grateful. This was the culture. One day, as Karen was walking home from work, there was a group of waitresses holding picket signs, just eight working-class waitresses who had been disrespected one too many times by the boss and by customers, and they decided that they were going on strike. Karen started to march with them and was inspired to change her own experiences in the workplace. So Karen gathered 10 clerical workers from different places, hospitals, an insurance company, a publishing house, a, a shoe factory, and they formed a group, began to meet weekly, and after a few months, formed a citywide organization that they called Nine to Five. Over the next several years, they created an office worker's bill of rights, held press conferences, they did studies of the publishing industry and the banking industry, filed lawsuits, and fought for equal pay. Karen knew Jane Fonda through the anti-war movement and invited her to a meeting of 40 clerical workers that she'd organized in order to share their stories. Jane brought some of her Hollywood people with her, and when one of the writers asked, have you ever dreamed of getting even with your boss? The room lit up. The movie Nine to Five was born, and it sparked one of the first national conversations about workplace harassment. Overnight, Nine to Five became a full-fledged union and added 20 local chapters. Dolly was able to put that struggle into a single song. It starts with pride, tumble out of bed, and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition, and then it goes to grievances, barely getting by, it's all taken and no giving. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It then goes to class conflict, you're just a step on the boss man's ladder. And then it ends with collective power. You're in the same boat with a lot of your friends. And this, more or less, is the story of Jesus 
and his ministry of organizing for change. In the Gospel of Mark, we first meet Jesus after his baptism by John and on the other side of his 40 days in the wilderness. Where does he start his ministry? In verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he picked up a few disciples and they went to Capernaum. This place, the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum, I mean, they don't really sound very interesting, so preachers usually just focus on the call of the disciples so that we can urge you to be followers also and drop the nets of your ordinary life to follow Jesus when he calls. But that Jesus begins his ministry by going to the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum is significant. Biblical scholar John Dominic Crossan suggests that Jesus' choice of Galilee and Capernaum may have more to do with class, with poverty, and with Roman policy than we ever thought before. We've been too busy talking about men dropping their nets to follow Jesus when a more interesting question might be, why these men, or why this location, or why this moment in history of the misery of the occupation and oppression of this region by Rome? And it has a lot to do with fishing. The Sea of Galilee can be understood as a metaphor for wealth, power, labor, occupation, oppression. It is a large freshwater lake, about seven miles wide and 13 miles long. And in Jesus' day, the shore was dotted with villages connected to the local fishing industry, among which Capernaum was the largest and the one with the largest harbor. Fishermen in that day did not operate in a free market economy. The fishing industry was a state-regulated, was state-regulated for the benefit of the urban elite. These urban elites were Greeks or Romans who had settled in Palestine following their military conquest, or they were Jews, well-connected with King Herod and his sons. They were part of the 1% of that day, and everyone else, the 99%, were poor. It is class conflict that sounds all too familiar. By starting his ministry in Galilee and in Capernaum, Jesus deliberately moved into a world of both oppression and insider trading, if you will, the nexus of both poverty and privilege. Caesar and Herod benefited from the fishing trade in a variety of ways. There were taxes on both the fish and on the processing, as well as tolls on shipping and land transport. So these workers paid to launch their boats, paid to process what they had caught, and then paid again to get it to market. It's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it. And you spend your life putting money in his wallet. Fishermen were at the bottom of a very detailed economic hierarchy. Their backbreaking labor mostly benefited Caesar Herod and those much-loved tax collectors, they all knew 
that the tide was never going to turn and their ship would never come in because all the boats were owned by the 1%. So that was where Jesus went to organize. He began to preach and to teach and to live the kingdom of God by the shores of the lake where the working poor cast their nets into God's abundant creation but would end up with almost nothing to take home to their families. As he passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew much in the same way, we can imagine, that Karen Nussbaum saw those eight tired and aggrieved waitresses and heard their stories. I can almost hear James and John, the sons of Zebedee, tell Jesus about their day-to-day, -day, barely getting by. It's all taken and no given. And like Karen Nussbaum, Jesus listened to the people who knew that the system was broken that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And, and he said, somebody's got to do something about it. And like Karen Nussbaum and those clerical workers who had had enough, Jesus started a union, you might say, recruiting and organizing disciples who dropped their nets, not just because they were mesmerized by him, but because they really couldn't afford to mend and cast anymore. So it is with us in this moment. We cannot afford to continue on as is. We cannot afford to be bystanders in who gets elected, what legislation passes, and what gets signed into law. The church has something to say about how we might hold all things in common and how to distribute proceeds to all as any had need, as described in the book of Acts. Our children cannot afford for us to do nothing while public education is being defunded, while democracy is being undermined at the highest levels while the earth screams at us that she cannot bear the weight of relentless, unchecked capitalism that strips her of every resource. We cannot afford to keep pretending that name-calling and hand-wringing are the same as taking action. We've got to get organized, folks, and we do so in the name of Jesus the community organizer based in Capernaum who said to those first disciples, loosely translated, there's a better life and you dream about it, don't you? Yes, indeed we do. And now to make that dream come true on earth as it is in heaven, the first step is to listen to someone else's story. But don't be surprised if it sounds very similar to your own, and you'll suddenly realize that you are not alone in the struggle, and we can get to work to make change together. Or you can keep doing what you're doing, but know that nothing changes if nothing changes. So, 
Let's go pour ourselves a cup of ambition and get to it. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Waukee, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.